Uh, If you'd open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, we're going to be reading from verse 1 through to verse 14. Um, Just before we start, can I just say um, how wonderful it was at our trivia night um, just about a week ago, uh, where, and I just want to thank everybody for your incredible generosity to the short-term mission. I think we raised almost $4,500, which is incredible. Um, for the work of the short-term mission. So thank you, everyone, for your generosity, and it's a great blessing to the team. Um, you'll also notice on the, um, the front cover of your orders of service, the book of the month this month is this one by Tim Keese um, called A Company of Heroes. Uh, if you're looking for a really good book to read and you want to be inspired, um, it, that is a terrific book. So I'd really commend it to you. Okay. We're going to be looking at verse 1 through to verse 14, and this is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ, in him. We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a great delight and joy it is to meet with you, the ever-living God, and to come before your throne now and to sit quietly at your feet. 
Lord, what amazing truths we have just read from your word. And we pray that now by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to know these truths, not just intellectually, Lord, but truly, really in our experience. That you would give us that spiritual knowledge, Lord. Help us to discern, Lord, what your word says. Open our ears that we would hear your voice. And please, Father, use this weak vessel, an unworthy servant, to declare your word faithfully and truthfully, that we might all be blessed and that your name will be glorified. So, Lord, we commit this time into your hands now and we ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. I know I've shared with, this, with you this before, but as Ben showed you all and the children in the children's talk this morning, one of the most precious gifts that I ever received from my wife was the personalised book embosser that Ben showed you. She gave it to me as a surprise gift from when I graduated from Bible college. It was so thoughtful and also, can I say, expensive, especially at the time when we didn't have much money, but it was also completely unexpected. It was the perfect gift for me, really, because I love reading books, and as a minister, I read them and collect them all the time, much to my wife's chagrin. Uh, but it meant that every time I got a new book, I could put my personal imprint on the inside cover. In fact, one of uh, one theologian I particularly uh, know, I've never met him, but he used to say to his students who could borrow any book from his library, he had a little uh, notepad beside his library and he said, look, you can borrow any book, but just write your name here in the, in the ledger, the, the date, the title of the book, that's the thieves book, <laughs> to make sure that the books actually came back to him. My personal embosser, as Ben explained, says, from the library of Mark Powell. It has a cross in the centre of it, and it's an indelible mark on the page that you can't get rid of. Every time I use it, I still get a little buzz, and uh, it's just so precious to me. I think it's a great illustration of the theological truth which we have just read about, though, from God's Word. Particularly in passages which we're going to look at today from verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. That as believers in Christ, we have been sealed until the day that he returns. That God has put his mark of ownership upon us. Even though the metaphorical book of our lives might get old and tattered and lost sometimes around the edges, nothing can change the fact that we are his. It's just such a profound and amazing promise. As we've been going through the prologue of Paul's letter, to Ephesians, I hope you've gained an increased appreciation for all that God has done for us as believers in Christ. It's so incredible and amazing. It's like each truth is like pearls upon a string or a necklace. Each one is precious and unique, and yet at the same time, each one is beautifully connected 
to one another. We come this week, though, to the final pearl on the necklace. And it's what it means to be sealed by God's Spirit. As always, there's a lot in this, but I think it can be pretty neatly summarized into three distinct parts. And they are the Spirit's sealing and our salvation, the Spirit's sealing and what you might call our securitization, and then finally, the Spirit's sealing and our sanctification. The first point then is the Spirit's sealing and our salvation. Paul says in verse 13 this, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, something I've been a bit remiss, to be honest, in explaining over the past couple of weeks is the deliberate use that Paul makes with the words us and we and this week, you. Why does he use those three distinct terms? Well, it's for a very important reason. Paul is often distinguishing in his letter between the promises and the plans that the Lord makes with the Jews and how it also relates to us, to we who are Gentiles. This will be explicitly developed throughout his letter and especially when it comes to the second half of chapter 2. But it's important to grasp Paul's salvation historical perspective between the Jews and the Gentiles. Because what it means is that there's been a movement from the Old Testament to the New Testament, where, as Paul explains in the book of Romans, we Gentiles have been engrafted into the vine, which is the people of Israel. Does that make sense? So the point that, Paul, that Christ's apostle is making at the start of verse 13, though, is that we also were included in all that God has promised for Israel. And what a precious truth that is. Especially whenever we struggle with the question of our own personal assurance before the Lord of whether or not we have been truly accepted by God. Because take a look at this verse again and notice how clear and certain we all can be. Paul says, And you also were included in Christ. When? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now the us then... Here is we who are Gentiles. And so Paul's teaching has both, can I say, a corporate as well as an individual focus. But let's stop and just unpack that for a second. What condition does God place on us being saved? There's no level of religious performance to be achieved is there because salvation, as Paul has been explaining, is truly a gift of God. It's the proclamation or the declaration of what Christ himself has done. Paul says back in verse 7, if you still have your Bibles open, we too have received forgiveness of sins through his blood. 
And that when Christ was crucified on the cross, he was making the perfect and final act of atonement for those whom God had chosen from every nation under heaven. And because of that, there would be no more sacrifice of sins because he has fulfilled the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament temple and its associated cult once and for all. Amen? As we saw last week, Jesus is the Joshua spoken of in Zechariah chapter 3. And what happened to him has also happened to us. We had our filthy robes replaced with the perfect, sinless righteousness of Christ Jesus himself. And he achieved all of this as Zechariah prophesied that he would in a single day. On the day when Jesus died at Calvary, just outside Jerusalem. Not only that, but Christ is the stone cut not by human hands, whose kingdom has grown into a universal mountain. There is not a country on earth now which doesn't have people in it who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. This little rock has grown into a mountain. And this is one of the great motivations for cross-cultural missions, that we now have the privilege of declaring his lordship to all nations on earth. It's incredible when you stop and think about it, isn't it? This little movement outside of Jerusalem has spread to South Africa and to Hobart, has spread to northern Thailand, has spread to America, has gone to Russia, has gone all over the world. You see, the good news of the gospel is that it is finished. God himself has accomplished what we ourselves could never hope to achieve. And it's the work of God's spirit which has actually brought us to saving faith in God's son. And in so doing, we have been saved from our sins and brought into God's family. Now, there's another really important passage where Paul unpacks this truth, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. Turn up to it with me, and I'll show you what I mean. This is also a great example as to why, be a bit controversial this morning, why there is not a second blessing of God's Spirit. What I mean by that is, you can't actually believe in Jesus unless the Holy Spirit has first brought you to faith in him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I tell you, and notice what Paul's saying here, no one who is speaking of the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, you cannot be saved and not have the Spirit of God. Because it is the Spirit of God who brings you to faith in Christ 
and therefore experience God's salvation, you see? All of which brings us to the second point, and that is the sealing of God's spirit and what we might call securitization. That's what I think Paul means when he says at the end of verse 13 and the start of verse 14, having believed, right, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, we saw a really powerful illustration of this uh, in this regard in our Old Testament reading from the book of Ezekiel. There we saw how the Lord himself commanded that the idolaters in his temple be killed. All those who refused to grieve or lament over the sin which was occurring in the temple of the worship of idols in the form of every creature under heaven. It's a sobering example, isn't it, of just how seriously the Lord takes sin, especially, can I say, when we try to syncretize the idols of our heart with the worship of the Lord. But at the same time, in his righteousness and mercy, God puts a seal on those who are his. He and he often does this throughout Scripture. He divinely protects those whom he has graciously and sovereignly chosen. Those whom he has given the grace to repent and to turn away from their sin. Now, there's a wonderful promise here which should really give us great comfort because those whom God has saved, he promises to make sure that their salvation will never be lost. This is such an important point that we're going to spend a bit of time turning over to a couple of different passages to further substantiate it. I've printed them out for you on your sermon outlines to make it easier for you to look up and maybe even to meditate on and pray over later. The first, though, is from John chapter 10. And starting at verse 27, it's where Jesus says this. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Now, this passage alone is really quite incredible because it's saying that our salvation is completely dependent upon God. Not only did God bring us to faith in Jesus, but he keeps us in faith in Jesus. We might sometimes doubt and think, yes, I, you know, I believe in Jesus, but you know, I'm not sure I can really make it to the end. And you know what? You're right. None of us are able to persevere simply by our own strength of will or commitment. John MacArthur is often quoted as saying, and he's right, if you could lose your salvation, you would. None of us are able to simply persevere by our own strength of will or commitment. But what does Jesus say? He says of his sheep, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Why? Because no one can snatch them out of my hand. We need to realise, brothers and sisters, 
God's grip is stronger than your own. Yes, we're called on to trust and obey him in response, but we need to always keep in mind that it's God that first reached out to us and rescued us. It's God that first drew you to him. And it's his purpose and it's his plan. It's his will to secure our salvation as well. And that's the power of God's spirit. If you turn over in your Bibles uh, to John chapter 6, we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, but it's also, it's so pertinent that we're going to consider it again and we really have to come back to it. Indeed, it's one of those passages that would be really good to commit to memory, particularly if you're wrestling um, with the question of assurance. Jesus says there, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. I'm so grateful that he puts that second one in. Because some people I know are sensitive in their conscience go, yeah, but what if I'm not one of those whom the Father has given to him? We'll come to Jesus and prove it. He says, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. And then he goes on to conclude, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You see, if we were to lose our salvation, then Jesus would have failed. Because Jesus has come to fulfill the Father's will. Now, there's a number of other passages we could go to, but let's just take one more. Turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to look at what Paul says from verse 3 to verse 7. He says, starting at verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Notice once again the reason for Paul's confidence. It's that the one who began a good work in us is going to carry it on to completion. That's why Paul can say, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, all of this is to the praise of his glory because all of the glory is going to God and not to ourselves. He praises God because he knows that it is the Lord who is at work in securing our salvation. Now, all of that leads to the third and final point. The Spirit of God has sealed us for salvation. The Spirit of God is sealing us also for what you might call securitization. But the Spirit of God is also sealing us for sanctification. We need to go beyond our passage in chapter 1 at this point. And look at what Paul will go on to say in the second half 
of Ephesians. Turn with me, please, to chapter 4, and I'm going to read to you from verses 29 to 32. You'll start and you'll go, where's Mark going with this? And then in just a moment, you'll go, ah, and you'll see how profound the sealing of God's Spirit is. Once again, the sealing of God's Spirit is explicitly mentioned here, but I want to draw your attention as to what some of the practical ramifications of this doctrine is. Because you might object to thinking, well, if that's the case, if God's sovereign like this, it doesn't matter how I live. That's the opposite of what Paul will go on to say. If my first two points of what I've showed you from Ephesians is true, it will make all the difference in the world to how you speak and act. Because there's actually enormous practical application to this doctrine. Paul begins in verse 29 by saying this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Why? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, there's an incredible amount of practical application found in these verses, isn't there? The first is, we have to be very careful how we speak. Is it edifying? Does it build other people up? Sometimes I think that our greatest skill as Australians is the scathing way in which we put others down and yet we cloak it with humour. It's just sin. The book of Proverbs, though, has some really challenging things to say about this kind of thing. For instance, chapter 26. This is Proverbs 26, 18 to 19. A good one for the fridge. Like a madman shooting firebrands or deadly arrows is a man who deceives his neighbour and says, I was only joking. You might immediately protest that, that oh, that's going to take away all humour. But I don't think that necessarily has to be the case. I mean, why does our humour have to bring other people down? Why can't we instead seek to actively build other people up? You see, we've been sealed with God's Holy Spirit. And that's how he now wants us to speak. Following on from that, we can get even more specific. Verse 31 of Ephesians 4 says that, we grieve God's spirit of whom we've been sealed. We grieve him. Not it, but him. The third person of the Trinity. We grieve him when there's bitterness or rage or anger 
or brawling or slander. We grieve him who has sealed us. He doesn't want us to be that way. Sadly, people hurt us. They don't meet our expectations. And that's always going to be the case, no matter what church we're in. An older pastor once said to me, he said, Mark, if you ever find the perfect church, make sure that you leave straight away because you'll spoil it. Or as some people say, you know, oh, I don't want to go to church. They're full of hypocrites. Sometimes I've never really brought myself to say this, but I should. Brother, come. There's always room for one more. <laughs> What's the characteristic of the, the truly Christian person, the person that's been sealed by God's Spirit, the person that's been saved, the person that's been secured? I'll tell you what it is. Forgiveness. Verse 32, it's that you'll see kindness, compassion, but most of all, forgiveness. But why? Why would you see that? Because we're good people. No one is good. No, not even one. Because that's precisely those things, kindness, compassion, but most of all, forgiveness, that's what we've received. And it grieves God. It grieves him deeply when we won't extend it to others. You see, just come back and reflect on everything that we've learned from God's word over the last couple of weeks or even months. The good news of our salvation is just so incredible and amazing, is it not? We've been justified, sanctified, and even glorified through faith. In Christ, we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And because we've received each and every one of these things, the Spirit of God wants us to relate to each other in the same way. Have you been forgiven everything in Christ? Then why would you hold on to any hurt? All of which leads us to the most challenging and I think confronting question of all. And that is, are you grieving God's spirit? Is your speech pleasing to him or disappointing? It could well be that your fellowship with God, the reason he doesn't feel close is because you're grieving him. Is your attitude towards other people compassionate, kind, forgiving? Or are you holding on to past grievances and disappointments? Are you being filled with God's spirit? And in Greek, it's a present continuous. Is, is God's spirit filling you like a balloon? continually expanding you with joy and peace? Or have you maybe quenched his holy fire? You see, just because God is sovereign doesn't mean that our actions cannot cause the Spirit's work in our lives to be affected. We can definitely quench the Spirit and grieve the Spirit. 
and our behavior will affect our experience of God's work in us. It doesn't mean he won't stop working in us, but you just won't experience it yourself in your own soul, the fullness and the beauty and the, the joy of it. The Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 2, Therefore, dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice, not work on your salvation. Work out your salvation. We have been saved. Now live it out. Why, he says, because it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Because it's God's spirit that's in us. It's precisely because we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit that we're to lead holy and transformed lives, lives of love. Because we've been loved. We are loved. The Lord himself is at work in us, friends, by his spirit. So let's make sure that we don't grieve him in what we say. And instead, let's strive to keep in step with the spirit and please him in all that we do. And all God's people said, let's pray. Lord, we do praise your name. Because you have been so good and gracious to us. Your love is so profound, Lord, we can't plummet steps. That we who were guilty and so undeserving should experience your grace, your forgiveness. And Lord, we, pray, we ask for your forgiveness this morning for where we have grieved you. For where we've grieved you, Holy Spirit, and we've quenched your fire. Lord, forgive us. Cleanse us and refill us, we pray. That we'd know your freedom, we'd know your joy, we'd know your peace. That we'd overflow with love and kindness and compassion and forgiveness for one another. Ah, Lord, thank you that you are so good. That you are so generous. And may we know the fullness of your spirit this day and increasingly increasingly each new day. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand and sing.